welcome, Neil. I said you're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell and there's definitely a fortune being made in the crime we will be discussing today and have been talking about this week or at least what should be a crime as it is immoral unethical cruel and just plain brutal we started this week by talking about the n-word neoliberalism a word so profane to the establishment media that you never seem to see, hear, or read it anywhere in the corporate press, whether it's private or public. We spoke with geographer Katie J. Wells earlier this week on her book, uh, who's on our show to discuss her book, Disrupting D.C., which explains why Uber exists, the conditions it exploits, and the political project it promotes. Then we were scheduled to speak with gender studies scholar Dr. Lisa M. Corrigan, who writes about social movements, democracy, and politics. Lisa was going to be on to discuss her new writing at The Nation, The Evisceration of a Public University. West Virginia University is being gutted, and it's a preview for what's in store for higher education everywhere. Lisa explains how an embrace of neoliberalism at public state universities across the United States has led to consulting firms firing teachers and slashing curriculum as the schools are mismanaged by high-paid administrators whose jobs and salaries are always left untouched by these consulting firms. But despite reports that the pandemic is over, that we have returned to normal with neoliberalism, which neoliberalism insisted we do in a perfect example of putting profits before people, despite business interests insisting everything's back to normal, Lisa, who lives in Arkansas, caught one of the at least three new COVID variants and had to cancel yesterday at the very last minute. Neoliberalism, as Katie told us, is an anti-democracy political project. As Lisa's writing describes, and she has rescheduled for the day after Labor Day, so stay tuned in for that, neoliberalism fuels inequality in education, having one curriculum for the rich and another for the rest of us. We continue to talk about what neoliberalism is destroying today, and get this, neoliberalism is even destroying capitalism through the mechanism of private equity capitalism may have met its match as the destructive force of profit stripping runs rampant through the economy in a few minutes we'll have the pleasure of speaking with award-winning critic and essayist contributing editor at the baffler essayist george shalaba who will join us to discuss his latest article kudzu the kingdom of private equity The article is a review of a couple of recent books on private equity. These are The Plunders by Gretchen Morganson and Our Lives in Their Portfolio by Brett Christophers. George has a new collection of essays out. It's titled Only Voices and published by Verso Books. You can find it at versobooks.com. He received the first annual Nona Balakian Citation for Excellence in Reviewing from the National Book Circles Crit- er, Berk, uh, National Book Critics Circle. George's writing has appeared in The Nation, Descent, Book Forum, N Plus One, Boston Review, among many others. He is the author of five previous essay collections and a memoir, 
How to Be Depressed. A collection of George's, which is a great title for a memoir, a collection of George's reviews appeared in his first book, 2006 Divided Mind. Four subsequent collections of his essays have been published, including What Are Intellectuals Good For, The Modern Predicament, For the Republic, and Low Dishonest Decades. The Modern Predicament was chosen by New York uh, New Yorker book critic James Wood in the magazine's year-end roundup of the best books of the year it was published. You can find his writing archived at georgeshalaba.net. That's S-C-I-A-L-A-B-B-A. He is nominally on twitter.com at georgeshalaba. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, how are you? How's your week going so far? So far, so good. I'm toasty, and I'm joined here by... uh a new a potential nice, producer. Uh, a nice young fellow named Nick. Nick, yeah. welcome to joining us here on This Is Hell. I really, really appreciate you coming in to uh, see how the board works. Yo, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, and uh, I got an email for you, and maybe a little bit later on, I'll be sharing that with our listening audience. So yesterday, I came over here after Lisa Corrigan canceled. Get well soon, Lisa. I came over to feed Mel, the less-than-feral bar cat but I could not get to the front door because something was blocking my way. There was a family crowded around on the sidewalk up front, pointing at the front door to the bar and excitedly talking. As I approached, I tried to prepare myself by guessing exactly what might have caught their attention at the front door, and I needed to get through that door to feed Mel. I mean, sometimes packages are left there, but what kind of package could be that exciting that a family would stop and talk about it and point at it? Every so often, there are people just sitting in doorways, sometimes eating Indian or Pakistani food from a to-go container, sometimes just sitting and people watching, sometimes sleeping. I couldn't fathom what they were staring at. For a moment, I, I worried it was Mel, that he had somehow gotten out and was now freaking out, trying to get back in. But when I turned the corner to see what caught the crowd's attention, I saw right there on Devon Avenue, a busy 35-mile-an-hour two-way street connecting the suburbs to Lakeshore Drive and Jobs downtown. Sitting there against the front door, curled up, motionless, was exactly what you'd expect to see on a busy street in Chicago. A possum doing what possums do, playing possum, not moving, not budging. So I entered through the back and left the same way to leave the possum alone with their thoughts, hopefully planning his escape from busy Devon Avenue without getting hit. We posted a picture of the possum on our Patreon page, so you can see it by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. But more important than a freaking possum keeping me from entering the bar to feed Mel the bar cat yesterday morning, Will, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, including our new stuff, which we revealed it the anniversary party back in July and you can now order that as well through our website this is hell.com when you click on support you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page you can tweet it at us you can post it on our Patreon page or you can post it on Discord 
or just email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Will, what's Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff meets the Perseids. Ah, the Perseids. Beautiful shower in the sky of stars, shooting stars. Absolutely wonderful every year. We got an email from the listener who gave us our favorite answer to the question from hell right before I went on my annual two-week summer vacation with family. Riley writes, howdy from southwest Ohio. This is hell team. Riley Dixon reporting. In, as the most recent winner of the question from hell, I embarrassingly divulged I have a tapeworm. The question from hell that week was, what do you want a vacation from? Which explains why Riley's reply was, my tapeworm. Riley shares this story. I went to a Sunday breakfast at a local dive bar after mass. What was I thinking? Who knows how long that crock pot was sitting out there and what was done to it. Midwest problems, am I right? I've loved your show for so many years now. I'm a journalist, and I've long admired your in-depth reporting. It's as inspiring as it is informative. I'm a journalist for a small-town black-and-white newspaper, the Yellow Springs News. We're a weekly that's been around since 1880. Hyper-local coverage, seldom anything beyond our two square miles of town. We have a a circulation of about 2,500. Yellow Springs is a village of 3,000 people with a pretty rich progressive history, but also a place of gross modern problems, housing, tourism, gentrification, etc. Dave Chappelle lives here and is causing a big mess with all of his property grabs. Recently, he put the kibosh on a major subdivision that would have added hundreds of homes. It was set to be built literally behind his property line. No surprise he leveraged his quote-unquote investments in town to keep village council from approving it. So from one news outlet to another, I thought y'all might like to hear that little quip, small-town journalism is alive and well in the Midwest. One last thing, sometime in 2015, maybe as late as 2018, y'all did an episode with an art historian cultural critic who talked about how the rich have historically bought works of art to store wealth, and that much of that has been... Uh, and much of what has been painted in Europe since the Middle Ages has been a way to represent personal affluence. Who was that person in the interview? And could I request a link to it? Love you all endlessly. I listen almost each and every day. Warmly, Riley. Thank you, Riley, for the very kind words and sorry about your tapeworm, but not even mass can save you from whatever the hell is in a dive bar crockpot on a Sunday morning or early afternoon. I think the interview you are asking about was our 2017 talk with Nato Thompson, N-A-T-O Thompson, author of Culture as Weapon, the Art of Influence in Everyday Life. The poll quote from that conversation was post, and was, that was posted at uh, thisishell.com is, NATO saying we have to consider that we are vulnerable to the forces of culture so that we can protect ourselves. And also just to understand that when we are thinking about the ways we are shaped as a country, it is not about ideas, but very much about culturally driven power. NATO explained how art and culture became a weapon aimed at the public by expanding the influence of the powerful across society and revealing the deeply emotional dimension to life and politics long concealed by liberal appeals to rationalism. And what Roger Ailes understands about human nature nature that Plato just couldn't get. We even have a transcript of that interview at our site via Antidote Zine. Riley, while we congratulate you for winning the question from hell and we will be sending your prize post-haste, Riley requested the This Is Hell winter cap. 
And we have the interview with Nato Thompson for you and uh, everyone's listening pleasure for free at our site, thisisl.com. We still do have a request. Riley, I adore small town newspapers. What do we have to do to get a subscription to the Yellow Springs News? If you are listening, Riley, send a subscription to This Is Hell 2251 West Devon Avenue, second floor, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. You too can contact us via email at chuckatthisishell.com, via Facebook, where you can message us or comment on our posts at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. DM us on Twitter at thisishellradio or leave a comment at our Discord or send us your thoughts via Patreon if you are a subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. And if you do, we will likely share whatever you write on air. Coming up, the destructive force of private equity. Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll tell you what's happening on Thursday's bonus podcast for Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell. And following this week's moment of truth from Jeff Dorch, and we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. Private equity is a monster. Okay, there's times when private equity coming into a business can help streamline costs, and at times it can lead to business being conducted more efficiently and effectively. But there's far too many instances of private equity coming in, pushing wages and working conditions down, stripping whatever profits were made that they can strip out of the business, and suddenly shuttering a business that the community has depended upon for generations. Here to help us have a better understanding of what private equity is and what it can do and what it may mean for the sustainability of capitalism, award-winning critic and essayist and contributing editor at The Baffler, George Shalaba, is joining us to discuss his latest article, Kudzu, The Kingdom of Private Equity. Thank you so much for being on the show, George. Apologies for the delays this morning. Delighted to uh, appear on this great institution, Chuck. Thank you. I really appreciate it. You start by writing a specter is haunting capitalism, the specter of financialization, industrial capitalism, the capitalism of dark satanic mills was bad enough, but it had certain redeeming features in a word. Well, two words, people in place, factory work may have been grueling and dangerous, but workers sometimes acquired genuine skills and being under one uh, roof made it easier for them to organize and strike. Factories were often tied by custom and tradition as well as logistics to one place making it harder to simply pack up and move in the face of worker dissatisfaction or government regulation. So that phrase, Dark Satanic Mills, uh, is from a poem by William Blake, first published in 1808, where Blake wonders how Christ might view the factories of the Industrial Revolution. I think. I didn't get very good grades in poetry classes. But is financialized capitalism better than that of the early Industrial Revolution because it is at least... It, it doesn't lead to the kinds of dark satanic mills that Blake described. Is financialization better for us as a society because it does not cost grueling human labor? Well, um, that whole first paragraph is, as I'm sure you got recognized, um, at least in part, a um, a kind of homage to Marx, uh, to Marxism. Um, Specter is haunting capitalism is a paraphrase of the Communist Manifesto's first sent sentence. Um, and, you know, we've all uh, 
heard the word dialectical tossed around uh, in discussions of Marxism and by now of everything else. But that it's a good way to conceive of the progress, so to speak, of of capitalism from industrial to financial. Uh, it, precisely that um, some of the disadvantages of the earlier form uh, are mitigated, but at the cost of uh, a more ruthless streamlining of uh, of the of the actual material circumstances, um, so that uh, you know industrial capitalism had its large costs, um, uh, but it was it was to to some extent human scale. Uh, the relations between employees and employer were again, to some extent, face-to-face. -face. Um, and this has, this has gradually evolved out of all recognition so that the employer is uh, many removes from, from the actual workplace. Uh, there's no one to confront, no one to protest to. Um, uh, complaints are always simply referred to um, company policy or the owner or some abstract entity. Um, and and also the other aspect of financial capitalism that is um, that is so painful is that it allows for a ruthless kind of quantification of everything. Um, you know, industrial capitalism had a little bit of slack, a little bit of leeway for, um, you know, owners could, owners could, I mean, there were benevolent owners, few of them, but there were some um, enlightened owners who actually cared a smidgen about their employees' welfare. And they had the leeway to, um, they could, they could afford to, to, um, you know, incur some small loss of profits in order to make a safer workplace or a better compensated workforce. Um, but now competition is so uh, inexorable that, uh, and, you know, and the the ownership is so far removed from the workforce and the workplace that there's simply no incentive and no um really no ability to um do anything but um uh just cut every um cent of costs and squeeze every you know every few minutes of labor out of the workforce so that's the evolution um marx did predict it um you know don't let anybody tell you that marx was um was you know full of it he he really got quite a bit right about capitalism including this
financialization doesn't exist in a physical place. Therefore, and you know, we, as you point out in your article, we don't know who is necessarily behind financialization, who is behind these private equity firms. They do whatever they can to stay anonymous. Do you think, how, how much of a contributing factor do you think making financialization, making the capitalism union-proof how much do you think that that drove financialization, that financialization was about how can we create profits that cannot be undermined by labor organizing? Yes, um, that was, they're, they're intimately linked. Uh, of course, um, the assault on unions is, you know, is, um, has been going on ever since, ever since Franklin Roosevelt, I mean, Sorry, Roosevelt didn't initiate it. He was a friend of unions, but um, but his very, you know, his very uh, cordiality toward unions aroused bitter opposition in the business community, um, which organized um, initially sort of underground. Um, well, the first thing it did was to uh, to organize a kind of propaganda campaign. Um, all sorts of media, um, TV programs, um, pamphlets, um, church sermons. Um, this this campaign, by the way, is detailed in a really brilliant new book um, called "The Big Myth: How Business Taught Americans to." to hate government and love the market uh, by Naomi Oreskes, O-R-E-S-K-E-S, a prize-winning um, author and her writing partner, I think, Eric Conway. Um, so that's the first thing they did was undermine the, you know, ideological and intellectual, try to undermine the foundations of, of unionism, of solidarity more, more broadly. Um, teach people that you know that everyone's on their own. That this is the definition of freedom: is that um, everyone is an individual unit with no responsibilities and no prospect of help from um, from solidaristic groups like unions. Um, and then you know as the 60s and 70s went on, they organized more and more, um, more and more overtly, first with the Goldwater campaign, um, and then with Reagan in California, and finally they elected their, their talking head and spokesman, Reagan, to the White House, and began in earnest to um, undermine all the institutions and policies of the New Deal, especially um, the labor movement. Nixon had begun to appoint um, lobbyists and uh, business executives and anti-labor lawyers to the National Labor Relations Board. Um, but Reagan just, you know, amped it up. And, you know, within a couple of decades, the labor movement was just bleeding and prostrate. I mean, the National Labor Relations Board is supposed to ensure that unions have a fair chance at organizing. Um, and it just, it just didn't, you know, they would, 
they would receive a complaint and do nothing about it for two years. And by then, the campaign was completely dead and uh, the union organizing efforts had moved on. And so, um, so it was, you know, it was, the, the deed was largely done by the time private equity um, moved in in the in the 90s. Um, but yes, there, you know, it's just, uh, it makes it all the more unimaginable to uh, organize the workforce when, when the, um, you know, when the ownership is just uh, invisible and, um, and abstract. Private equity is just another symptom of the cruelties of neoliberalism. It's not the issue, as I think that you're trying to make the point of, the issue isn't necessarily just private equity, but private equity is a symptom of a larger thing that we should recognize. You write that Marxism predicted that because of competition and technological improvement, it would eventually prove more and more difficult to make a profit through the relatively straightforward activity of industrial capitalism. It looked for a while, from the mid-1940s to the mid-1970s, as though capitalism had proven Marxism wrong. Now, financial capitalism obviously shows that things have changed, and Marx may have been right all along. That is, he was eventually proven correct. What change so industrial capitalism could no longer provide as it had in the post-war period and up until the uh, mid-1970s? Why can't you know industrial capitalism produce the economy it once did and as and is it possible to recreate those conditions as many rust belt politicians promise can we just go back to that era when industrial capitalism worked and what happened to make it so it wouldn't didn't work anymore well um the question as always is worked for whom it worked relatively well for workers in that period uh they had um they had union protections. They had, uh, you know, they had large-scale contracts, industry-wide contracts. Um, they had a very much larger share of national income than they do now. They had um, occupational sa- safety and health protections. Um, uh, you know, all these things might seem to you, might to us. Um, as though, you know, proof that capitalism is uh, potentially benign. <clears throat> However, to the um, to the owning class, they were anathema. Um, they uh, they wanted a large, larger share of the national income, and through. Um, through the destruction of the labor unions and through the destruction of progressive taxation, uh, through the drastic curtailment of um, regulation, business regulation, they now have a vastly higher share of national income. So capitalism is now working very well for them. Um, you know, why did the tide turn? Well, partly it just it, it turned because they organized so relentlessly and with such uh, enormous resources. Um, 
partly they, um, for three decades from the mid forties to the mid seventies, um, the world was, you know, uh, basically it was a very sunny day in the world economy. Um, but then Europe and Japan began catching up economically to the United States, began competing effectively with American um, corporations. So um, American corporations began lobbying for, uh, lobbying against the Bretton Woods agreements, um, the international agreements at the end of World War II, um, brokered by Keynes and by um, Roosevelt's New Deal economists um, to, you know, rein in the forces of international competition and um, in particular by, by limiting the movements of, of speculative capital. Um, so in the mid seventies, business began um, agitating against these restrictions and um, uh, and they won. Nixon um, Nixon withdrew the United States from the from the Bretton Woods agreements, and um, it's been a first gradual and and lately rapid devolution from there. Uh, can can we can the good times come back? Well, um, certainly things can get a lot better. Um, you know, it's it's hard to see. I was I was going to say it's hard to see how they could get worse, but unfortunately, it's um, it's um, with the reading I've been doing about you know this new form of financial capitalism, it's it's not that hard to see how things could get worse. But could they get better? Um, I mean, it's a political question. If the um, if the non-investing class, the broad, you know, mass of the population can can become conscious and then get organized. But you know, it's a um, it's a daunting prospect. And half of the working class now seems to be convinced that um, their savior Trump is being unjustly persecuted by the wicked liberal faction. I mean, it's, there's not, mu there's not that much um, uh, solidaristic or anti-capitalist consciousness around. Um, but that just means that you know, more people have to tune into this is how radio and um, and get the um, get the message. <laughs> so, other reasons cited for the collapse of Bretton Woods, which created the IMF and the World Bank, are spending on President Johnson's Great Society, as well as on the military and the U.S. war in Vietnam and the global economic crises of the mid 1970s. So, it was leaving Bretton Woods more a function of ongoing events or the power of Wall Street or more of a political project? Was this simply because the United States had no choice but to leave Bretton Woods because of the events that were taking place, or was this a choice? Well, I would say it was a choice. Um, certainly, Wall Street 
um, uh, pushed very hard for uh, for this move because it, above all, stood to gain um, to gain you know vast um, vast riches from uh, from speculating in currencies and from you know brokering international investment um and they did i mean this is uh you know wall street ballooned um i mean its balance sheet ballooned um after uh after the after the mid 70s um so you know i would say it was it was partly raw political power. I mean, there were, the US did have some financial problems um, caused by the expenditures for the Vietnam War. Um, you know, it could have handled them in other ways. Um, but But it's true that those, you know, those were some of the reasons given, just that it would ease pressure on the dollar, and um, you know, it would it would uh, it enhance America's balance of payments. But um, you know, it's not coincidental that it that it um, greatly, greatly enriched Wall Street and. And suited um, America's corporate competitive position. You point out that the result from leaving Bretton Woods was a tsunami of speculation over the next few decades, enabled by wave after wave of financial deregulation. The latter was a joint product of fierce lobbying by financial institutions and the ascendancy of laissez faire ideology, also called neoliberalism, embraced by Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, and subsequently by. Bill Clinton and Tony Blair. This idiocy was bipartisan. Clinton and Obama were as clueless as their Republican counterparts. To you, what explains that bipartisan idiocy? Was it a function of new campaign regulations, new electoral uh, campaign regulations that allowed for more and more money to get into campaigns, thus forcing these political parties to do whatever they could to raise money from corporations. What explains that bipartisan idiocy of both the Democratic and Republican Party embracing neoliberalism? Well, yes, uh, certainly the what you point to is um, is spot on. Um, but in the I mean, Ronald Reagan won two elections and was very popular, um, preaching. It's a very simple-minded gospel of um, uh, markets equal freedom. And Margaret Thatcher, likewise, slightly more sophisticated, but not very. Um, and uh, Democrats got the idea in the early 90s that um, that they were kind of um, old-fashioned and fuddy-duddy being 
tied to unions. They got the idea that unions were losers, that um, that social welfare programs were losers. Um, uh, they just thought that the new thing was, um, you know, the end of big government. Um, it was just a new thing to say, a new marketing strategy. Um, and it worked. It worked for Bill Clinton. Um, uh, you know, they their commitment to, I mean, there was there were still, and also the 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 the, the politicians who had um, grown up with the New Deal and who, you know, Tip O'Neill and Walter Mondale. Um, were dying off. They were seen as dinosaurs even before they died. Um, so to some extent, it was a fashion statement on the Democrats, an ideological fashion statement on the Democrats' part. Markets seemed cool. Um, government seemed um, just out of date. That was part of it, um, as well as the... Um, as well as, as you mentioned, money pouring into the um, to the political process. Ideological fa uh, fashion statement. That's really interesting because it gets back to other conversations we've recent had recently had on the show when it comes to people. Uh, linking their social identity to their political party. So that's very, that's really interesting. You point out that uh, neoliberalism, neoliberalism causes financialization, which in turn contracts economies, leading to austerity and severe budget cuts to public services across the board. Yet austerity is still being employed in places like Mexico by a left-leaning administration. In Argentina, they just voted into power a far-right libertarian who promised austerity. If financialization is, as you say, a plague, why is austerity still pursued and at times demanded by the voting public? Why are financialization and austerity still embraced if they are so destructive? Well, you know, I hesitate to say anything that hints at the old and supposedly discredited Marxist notion of false consciousness. But, you know, there is a certain amount of mystification um, um, involved. Um, I mean, Ronald Reagan was pure mystification. Um, I don't think he knew which end of the economy was up. Um, and I think, you know, people everywhere fall for this same um, uh, stale cliche that government is like a household and has to imbalance its balance its budget um, every year or every few years um, and um, And it's um, it's not true, um, you know. Keynes showed seventy years ago that it's not true. Um, 
Paul Krugman shows every week practically that it's not true. Um, uh, but the, you know, the appeal of that simple, simple-minded um, trope, and um, also the fact that, you know, the the people, the expense that it's easiest to attack is, um, you know, the whatever share of benefits um, go to the powerless always viewed as social parasites and um, you know the appeal of cutting expenses by you know by squeezing your um, your poor is is just evergreen it, it never seems to um, never seems to um, to fail so um, you know, I don't think there are good reasons why austerity is such a widespread and, um, you know, it's it's not a particularly successful strategy. It doesn't lead to economic uh, recovery, at least as far as I can glean from an unsystematic reading of the economic news. Um, I think it is, like so much of economic policy, and primarily political. You point out that in the wake of Milton Friedman's famous and influential 1972 pronouncement that corporations have no other obligations than to maximize profits, several business school professors further honed neoliberalism into an operational formula. The fiduciary duty of every employee is always and only to increase the firm's share price. This shareholder value theory, which exalted the interests of investors all over all others, indeed recognized no other interests at all, afforded the intellectual and moral scaffolding of the private equity revolution. So business no longer had any public obligation and any negative impact on workers or on the greater society or culture or on public health or on the planet became externalities, the term the business sector uses for the harm it does to people, the planet, and the economy. How aware was the public as these changes were taking place that these changes were taking place? Was there public debate over neoliberalism? Was neoliberalism a political campaign issue? Was there an outburst of opposition or support from the public, or was this simply never mentioned, and then once somebody gets elected, they would just install neoliberalism? Well, I think it's more the second than the first. Um, I, I mean, people were aware, generally, that the Democrats were backing away from their traditional social welfare pro-labor policies, um, and a lot of them kind of liked that, um, especially in the South. Um, uh, sorry, I just um, lost track for a minute. Um, uh, but but also um, also no, I I think that this didn't. It wasn't very widely or publicly debated, certainly not by 
politicians um, and not effectively in the news media. Remember, it was Ronald Reagan who abolished the Fairness Doctrine, which um, meant that every outlet was um, obliged to air the opposing viewpoint. Um, and um, and the result was um, Fox News and Rush Limbaugh, just the most the most um, colossal organizing tools that the right has had in the last forty years. Um, um, can you imagine if the Fairness Doctrine had forced Rush Limbaugh to, you know, to allow someone 10 minutes at the end of each of his shows to um, point out what absolute poppycock he was um, spouting. Um, but not to be. Also, the concentration of ownership in the media, the concentration of ownership in every industry is um, ominous, but in the media in particular, um, you know, um, you said you love small newspapers. Well, I, likewise, small urban newspapers is um, used to be free to interpret the news their own way. But when they were bought by Gannett or whatever other chain bought up newspapers um, uh, in the 80s, 90s, and aughts, um, you know, they would, they would, um, publish a left-wing editorial and the next day a memo would come down from corporate headquarters um, expressing displeasure. Well, expressing displeasure the first time, um, you know, um, demand a face-to-face -face meeting the second time and dismiss the third time. You know, the, the media, the, the mechanisms of um, ideological control are various and subtle, but but they're real. Um, so that's, I think, why austerity and neoliberalism were not vigorously debated and accepted by an informed public. You write that an academic study found that around 20% of large private equity acquired companies were bankrupt within 10 years, compared with 2% of all other companies. Another study looked at 10,000 companies acquired by private equity firms over a 30-year period and found that employment declined between 13 and 16%. A 2019 study found that, quote, over the previous decade, almost 600,000 people lost their jobs as retailers, as retail collapsed after being bought by private equity. So the majority of private equity purchased firms do not fail, but relative to non-private equity controlled firms, instead of the typical one in 50 businesses going under, it's more like one in six or one in eight failing when controlled by private equity. So is private equity increasing and are businesses failing a failure for private equity or a boon? Is private equity increasing and is failing for private equity good or bad? Well, again, um, 
the political form of that question is good for whom? Um, it's very good for the, the private equity firms themselves. Um, it's, it's sometimes good for their, for their investors, their partners, limited partners, they're called. Usually um, insurance companies or public or private pension funds. Um, it's usually, you know, it's usually at least an ordeal and often a disaster for the companies that they actually take over. Um, so, you know, if you, um, if you look at the profits that, that the investors and the, um, and the managers, the private equity firms make, and you, you count them on the plus side, and you look at the uh, workers who lost their jobs and suppliers who got screwed by the new owners and, uh, and the customers who had to pay higher fees or prices um, as negatives, then the positives might, you know, in strict monetary terms, outweigh the negatives. But, um, you know, you're saying that, you know, a billion dollars of profit to, to the 1% um, outweighs three quarters of a billion dollars of losses to the 99%. Um, I mean, that's a way to look at it. And I guess it's the way I would look at it. Private equity is very good for people who who can game the system as expertly as these people do. I mean, they know the tax odds just um, to a jot and a tittle. Um, but, um, you know, the companies are always, are always squeezed. And usually they're loaded with debt as well. The leverage buyout means loading the debt you take on to by the company onto the company itself. Why, why, why the laws allow this? I can't imagine. Well, I can imagine that um, you know heavily heavy lobbying on the part of the industry. But anyway, the debt goes onto the books of the company that is acquired, and so what do they do in order to pay the interest on this debt? They need to cut costs, which means shedding a lot of workers um, and squeezing the ones that remain. Um, so so it's um it's a bad deal for the for the country, for the economy. Um, it's really just a it's just a big siphon from the population at large to the you know to the top few percent of the income distribution. Um, so a key, a key feature of neoliberalism, as you point out in your writing, is regulations uh, incentivizing uh, risky investments by insurance companies, by banks, uh, making incentivizing risky uh, investments with account holders' money. So that, though, supposedly will lead to economic growth. 
but it will also lead to economic instability. George, do we have to choose between stability and growth? Is taking risks the best way for the economic growth that both parties pursue? Is that the reason why uh, these kind of risky regulations are being embraced on uh, having bipartisan support when it comes to neoliberalism, that this that neoliberalism provides for the growth that both parties want and let the stability be damned? Well, um, if it did, you know, if it if it did promote growth at the expense of stability, then, you know, then we could have an argument about it. But it doesn't particularly, um, or at least it doesn't promote growth in the in the population at large and for the 90%. Um, the, the real wages uh, for workers are just about exactly what they were 40 years ago. I mean, that's a staggering um, statistic, especially when juxtaposed to the fact that um, income for the 1% is, has doubled in the last 40 years. So, um, well, but beyond that, um, it's not just unfair, but it's, it's, um, it's a con in another way. Uh, risks... Fine. If someone wants to take a risk um, to build a, uh, you know, a new lithium battery or whatever, uh, a wind farm, um, some productive asset, um, then, well, you don't mind him making a profit or her making a profit. Um, it's um, uh, that's what capitalism is supposed to be about. But if risk just means um, uh, shuffling financial assets and gaming the tax laws, which is what risk means in private equity, then um, that's something else again. Um, the what is what is gained if the risk works, is not anything genuinely useful and productive. It is just, um, you know, a mark on the profit side of the ledger for some already very, very rich uh, concern. You know, risk is one way that the market ideology was sold. Um, you know, the idea is that the noble capitalist entrepreneur will, um, uh, you know, selflessly takes on risk, risk, risks his own, you know, capital to produce something of benefit to mankind. And, um, you know, and if he fails, he fails. And if he succeeds, then he deserves praise and profit. Well, this is bunkum, at least as applied to financial capitalism. Um, uh, not only, you know, do there risks fall on do the gains flow to one side and the risks are borne by the other but increasingly um private equity in the united states and especially the united kingdom are writing into their um contracts with public 
um, public agencies, increasingly they're moving into um, assets like, um, you know, like parking meters, like um, electric power stations, uh, telephone lines. And so th these involve uh, contracts with uh, public entities. And they've been writing into these agreements with these entities, something called de-risking. That is to say, the entities insure them a guaranteed minimum profit rate. Um, you know, this is, this is downright uncapitalistic. Capitalists are supposed to take risks, but so anyway, um, I think risk is basically a calm and no, it's not necessary. Um, for in instability is not necessary for growth. We had, uh, we had remarkable growth, unprecedented growth and unprecedented stability from 1945 to 1975 with the New Deal. That's what liberals should want again, and that's what conservatives are fighting tooth and nail. So is de-risking, is neoliberalism, is financialization, are they all a threat to capitalism? If you were somebody who was a diehard capitalist who believed in capitalism, would you see these as a risk to the sustainability of capitalism or as a pure expression of capitalism? Well, if you were an old-fashioned capitalism capitalist, um, you would see them as a threat. However, um, if you were an old-fashioned uh, large-scale capitalist, then you have a board and you have uh, advisors who have been telling you for some time now that, you know, that the game has changed. Um, you need to, you need to um, find, you know, you need to get into financial assets. Um, um, you can't be an old fashioned capitalist anymore. So, um, yeah, so, Gradually, old-fashioned capitalists will be rendered extinct, but um, most of them will will have joined the uh, the game before that. One last question for you, George. We have been speaking with award-winning critic and essayist and contributing editor at The Baffler, George Shalaba. He has joined us to discuss his latest article, Kudzu, The Kingdom of Private Equity. You can find all of his writing at his website, georgeshalaba.net. That's S-C-I-A-L-A-B-B-A. -A -A. One last question for you, George, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask or you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. You conclude by writing, maybe the rest of us will see through the mystifications and navigate the political obstacle course they and their legislative allies of neoliberalism will undoubtedly throw up to keep, up, keep us from holding them accountable. If not, then we'll all be assets someday. So, George, what happens when we all become assets, how will our lives change if we all become nothing more than assets? Not citizens anymore, not consumers, not human beings, but only assets. Well, I suppose the two-word answer is Blade Runner. You remember in that movie, um, uh, 
with Harrison Ford, the population is just, um, it's just warehoused in this, in these enormous um, skyscrapers, um, completely faceless, um, uh, just drones. Um, you know, that's some ways down the line um, and probably it's better than uh, what the less developed world will be subjected to. But, you know, I think the, the most objectionable aspects of life now, um, the commodification of everything, um, surveillance, um, Um, regimentation. I mean, it'll be the the present at its worst, only worse. Um, so it's possible, you know, it's possible, and the opposition is very formidable. You know, they really have done a superlative job at capturing the um the political classes um at capturing the legislative and executive branch and recently the judicial branch um they are riding high um and you know we're not going to dislodge them in this generation but we have to um we have to pass on at least the ideals of solidarity and public accountability to the next generation and um, so that they can fight hopefully more successfully than us. George, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. This has been a fascinating conversation. We have been speaking with award-winning critic and essayist and contributing editor at The Baffler. Essayist, again, George Shalaba, who has joined us to discuss his latest article, Kudzu, The Kingdom of Private Equity. You can find out more about George at his site, georgeshalaba.net. Again, thank you very much for being on our show, George. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, this is hell if you learned something from our conversation with George on the evils of neoliberalism, market ideology, private equity. Show your appreciation by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is... I mean, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> and over on Facebook, we have a number of posts in the past week. Neil C. responds, Prohibition. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> That's nightmarish. John T. replies, Running out of savings before 60 when, by family history, you will probably live till your mid-80s. <laughs> Yikes. Nice family history, by the way, though, because everybody else is going to die when they're about 73. Right? <laughs> That's true. And no social security left to go around. No. Uh. Adam A. replies, four words, 
Henry Kissinger sex tape. <laughs> Adam always comes through, man. Yeah. Uh, that's a good band name, too. <laughs> uh, our very own Sebastian Vooper replies, False vacuum decay. Look it up. It's definitely the worst possible thing to happen. If it's actually possible, jury still seems out on that. I was so frightened I didn't look it up. I did, but then I got distracted by post-production on uh, our last episode, so I will have to revisit this <laughs> maybe before see. Patreon. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Doug M. responds, sporadic loss, sporadic loss of bowel control <laughs> coupled with total amnesia immediately following said loss. Uh, (laughs) our very own pete replies if there's no more pie i'm out of (laughs) here okay ezel s answers why the hell would i tempt fate by answering a question like this exactly exactly why wish that into the world warren l aliens it's always (laughs) aliens (laughs) (laughs) Let's check out Twitter. Nurse C replies, The worst that could happen is that we collectively do nothing but wait for the fantasy of normal to reappear so we can all go back to sleep. (laughs) Amen, Nurse C. Yes, but on the other hand, sleep sounds pretty good. I know. Tired. (laughs) Eddie C replies, Hell if I know, but facing the end times wearing nothing but a damn toga has got to be up there. <laughs> okay. I don't think I'll mind what I'm wearing in the end times myself. No, no, in I think fact, that everything I'm wearing will be bugging me at that point. Yeah. I'll be butt naked for the end times. I'll be butt naked just to get back at everybody else. <laughs> it's their problem. So you're weaponizing your exactly. nudity? Exactly. It's not even passive aggressive, it's just aggressive. <laughs> oh. Any more? On Discord, the answer to the question, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? First one on Discord comes from EXE0422. Chuck forgets to wish Jeffy to stay beautiful, and he metamorphizes into a monstrous creature too terrifying to contemplate. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Kim G replies, I'm choosing not to accidentally manifest anything as bleak as my imagination can conjure. That's a good move. Good move. Kim G has a good imagination. Um, Kongaku, this is dead astronauts. <laughs> wow. 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 A little specific. Yeah. I mean, if they're billionaire astronauts, maybe that wouldn't be the oh, worst. I'm all for that. Yeah. Um, Meist- and then finally, Meister Chops chimes in with, oh, that's a suggestion for a future question from hell. What is a suggestion anyway? When Ron DeSantis was at Yale... What secret society was he part of? <laughs> and then he has a parenthetical statement, or they have a parenthetical statement. Um, there was a story today about his time at Yale, but I fail- it failed to say which secret society he was part of. Yes, it did. I noticed that as well. They <laughs> yeah, kept I mean, mentioning that he was part of a secret society without ever mentioning that secret society, which keeps that s- secret society secret. Right. I did not get that Which at begs all. begs the question of how do they know he was in a secret society that they can't even Look at you thinking. Whoa. That's dangerous, my That's, friend. I know. Watch out. 
The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can still leave your answer at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can post it on Patreon. You can post it on our Discord. Uh, We'll be checking to see if anything new pops up, but we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth. Will, again, what's Jeff up to during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff meets the Perseids. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt... Oh, I just put something down that I wasn't supposed to. Uh, Okay, I'll take care of that later. Uh, Help us climb out of that debt. You can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon. Patreon.com slash thisishell. Get exclusive access to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which streams weekly and is podcast shortly after at the same place patreon.com slash this is hell this week on patreon it's what happened on last week's patreon that has kept me thinking obsessing for the last week we had a new we have a new feature here on uh patreon uh or we do have a new feature on Patreon for Patreon patrons, patreon.com slash thisishell. Not only do Patreon patrons get first crack at the question from hell every week, but they can now also ask me your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz a question from hell, which sight unseen, maybe those aren't the best words to use considering my seeing ain't that great without my knowledge of any of the questions from hell submitted by patreon patrons whoever's producing the patreon podcast selects one of your questions and poses it to me at which point i must answer immediately and spontaneously but i could not get last week's question from hell for me offered by a patreon patron couldn't get it out of my head because it's something i've been thinking about for a while and i mentioned in passing on the show several months ago P.F. asked, Chuck, what the hell needs to happen before you get to enjoy regular, restful three-day weekends? P.S. In this scenario, forcing a week's worth of work into four hours is not an option. Sleeping like the dead on the weekend does not equal relaxing or being restful. So, this week on Patreon, I'm diving deep into that question that is one we all should be asking, which is, what is our relationship with time and money. Also on Patreon, as yesterday's guest had to cancel at the last minute because they caught the virus from the COVID ap- uh, pandemic, which we are told is over. Now get back to normal, get back to work, because Lisa Cor- Corrigan could not join us to discuss how the right is killing liberal arts education in public state universities. We're going to be playing a talk we had way back in 2006 when we spoke with Felicia Gustin, co-director at Speak Out, the Institute for Democratic Education and Culture, which you can find at speakoutnow.org. She still is the uh, co-director at that organization. At the time of this conversation, again, 17 years ago, we are the conversation that we're sharing tomorrow, Felicia had just co-authored a new report with past This Is Hell guest Anurada Mittal. That report was titled, Turning the Tide, Challenging the Right on Campus, which was posted at the Oakland Institute website, oaklandinstitute.org. The report was an analysis of right-wing and corporate influences on college campuses. But the only way you can hear me consider what it would take for me to have a four-day work week and a three-day weekend, as well as what 
as well as hear about a five-decade-long campaign by the far right to destroy education for everybody but the wealthy. The only way you can hear all that is by becoming a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash thisishell. If you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, you not only get a, you not only get all those Patreon episodes, like 350 of them, you get that special code word so you can get all of our merchandise for $5 off, but you also get first crack at the question from hell and you get an opportunity to actually ask me a question from hell. That's patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Jeff with a moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will be announcing this week's winner. We do have one more email to read and we'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This is Hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This is Hell, and you don't have Jeffy on the line because you have him sitting right here in front of me. It's time for the moment of truth. One, two, you know what to do. Meet the Perseids. Sunday night last week, I stayed up as late as I could to watch the Perseid meteor shower. I couldn't really stay up as late as I wanted to because it got cold out and I was exhausted from traveling most of the day, but I stayed up as late as I could. The earth passed through a cloud of loose debris, bright streaks flashed, trailed briefly, and faded in the starry sky as the upper atmosphere was pelted with space gravel. My brother, sister, and I were on the beach on Grand Traverse Bay, Lake Michigan, just north of the 45th parallel. Let me tell you, the American dream actually happened to my family. My grandparents fled anti-Jewish violence in Belarus. They arrived in the U.S. as children. My grandfather established himself as a house painter, then as a contractor. My father went to college and became an architect, started his own company, and now we have a vacation house on Lake Michigan on land purchased when I was around 13 years old. I don't think we ever complained as kids when we were brought to the unfinished house with its floor of bare concrete heated by a Franklin wood-burning stove. Over the decades, my parents have made it a masterpiece. Though it's not as large as most houses in the area, with the extra accommodations of a camper trailer parked in the driveway, a few people sleeping in my mother's art studio attached to the garage, and me sleeping in the enclosed gazebo on a wooded bluff overlooking the beach, we had the entire clan up there at the eponymous Barb and Sam's House of Wine Drinking and Chipmunk Training. My parents, me, my brother and sister, my brother's five kids, a wife of one of the kids, and a girlfriend of another, plus my brother's two dogs. My existence has turned out to be relatively privileged thanks to friends and family, despite my best efforts, conscious and unconscious, to fail at life. Can't help comparing my oddly fortunate outcome with that of my friend Michael, who recently died of pneumonia at 62 after some years suffering from aggressively progressing early-onset dementia. In three chairs on the beach, my brother, sister, and I sat next to the dying fire in the fire pit. The burning pebbles above at first appeared only grudgingly, but soon acquiesced to our demands for a show. 
we swept our gazes across the sky like lazy satellite dishes south to north, hooting happily when we saw a flash or a streak, cursing out the others and the heavens if one flared while we were looking elsewhere. We'd each seen over a dozen before we hit the cots. The following night it stormed. In the gazebo, on an Aerobed brand Aerobed, in the adequate warmth of an unzipped sleeping bag, the zipper didn't work, at midnight in gale force winds, with rain coming down, ghosts of Ottawa Indians and Wendigo swirling about, I felt the presence or essence of Michael. He had dropped out of high school and left home at 16 due to friction with his father, which led to friction with the rest of his family. For a time, he supported himself by card counting and playing poker. He had a good head for statistics, which developed into magnificent card playing skills. I met him in Ann Arbor, where he'd moved from the East Coast to follow a woman. His friend Ken Jordan, son of Fred Jordan of Grove Press, introduced him to the crowd I now call us. Most of us were in the residential college or other schools within the University of Michigan. Michael never attended, but was active in the cultural, intellectual, and card-playing life of the university. He appeared in and wrote plays, made music and literature. He participated in and initiated creatively disruptive protests. He dated the women. He played in the bands. He played tennis at our tennis tournament, Wimpleton. He fretted about ethics, including those around winning money from habitual residential college gamblers. He told me that what he'd seen of developing world poverty on a trip to the Dominican Republic led him to vow never to travel in such places again. So he was one of the few of us who spent no time in Asia, Africa, or Central and South America. An athlete, he took fastidious care of himself to the point of obsession. At least, that's what I would call it. Of course, to me, an exercise regimen one strives not to depart from, or what to me qualifies as a barely subsistence level intake of calories per day, rigidly scheduled and adhered to, qualifies as obsessive. I'm a fat, lazy ape with few identifiable scruples. Michael and I were opposites, despite the similarity of at least part of our family's ethnic origins and our common interests in truth, justice, and the tortuous American way, we were friends, and I found him to be sweet and brilliant and just a lovely man, and neurotic, so maybe not entirely opposite. He had a blog of his remarkable writing, Oblivio.com, where he explored his thoughts, feelings, and perceptions. He was fascinated and annoyed with America, as in the USA, as concept and wish and mild to severe disaster and with love, beauty, and truth and their manifest expressions in life. On the Oblivio domain, he very kindly and even enthusiastically hosted the moment of truth until This Is Hell procured its current website. You really had to be in the presence of Michael to get the full effect of his Michaelness, of course. His voice was calm. His consonants were tasted as much as enunciated. He did not lose his cool often, so when he did, it was shocking and painful to see because he was typically strong without effort. And then suddenly he was vulnerable and vexed. He wasn't always reasonable, but when unreasonable, he was aware of it, made fun of himself, not in a self-deprecating way like a self-hating comedian, but in a gentle way, as if he had the affection for himself one might for a dis <clears throat> for a misguided child. He stood up straight and was economical in his movements. And then he lost his short-term memory and some of his cognitive ability. 
He tried to behave as if it weren't happening, which was difficult for those around him, though he might have thought on some level that he was doing it to keep from upsetting them. Our great friends in Chicago, David and Mikkel of Theater Ublek, aided him at this time, along with an extraordinarily kind neighbor of his and our sports journalist friend Dave Waldstein, to maintain and maintain to attain and maintain a living and health care situation in Brooklyn. He was well looked after in his last years. I've always associated him with dark army green color of garments. Uh, dark army green color of garments, sweaters and toques and chinos. I'm not sure why. I guess he wore them a lot, but maybe I connect him somehow with Radar O'Reilly. He wasn't much like Radar O'Reilly, except in a vague way, the same way our friend Cindy always reminds me of cinnamon and the color Harvest Gold, Pantone 16-0948. In the dark gazebo, with the rain and wind and ghosts swirling and whipping around outside, I had an image of Michael in a transparent protective shell swept by currents amid the storm. Lightning couldn't strike him as he rose through and above the storm clouds into the star-spangled space under the arch of the Milky Way. Space gravel couldn't pelt him. Stars couldn't fall on him. Maybe he'll meet the Perseids. Maybe he'll become a Perseid. And people will say, there's one, when he streaks across the sky, or damn it, when they're looking the wrong way. He will one day, we will one day soon memorialize Michael in Brooklyn, where he lived what would be the too few latter decades of his life. And then maybe someone will tick off everything I got wrong here. But so much of Michael was always in my reveries because I didn't see him often. I can't imagine there'll be much to debate. This has been the moment of truth. Mm, good day. I had the pleasure of meeting Michael on a few occasions, and I do remember him running Oblivio.com, which was hosting uh, the Moment of Truth. So thank you, Michael, for everything that you did for you and all of your friends. I yeah. all very much appreciate it. He was very great. He was just a sweet guy. And it was just like, I don't know. It was, very, it was really hard to see him in distress, especially the last day I saw him in person, which was, I think we were... Uh, meeting to memorialize Danny Thompson and we're another theater Ublek person yes who had died and then and, and we were all there a whole bunch of people gathered at the hop leaf and Michael came running out and I was as I was walking in uh, and met me and said I gotta get out of here I just can't be among all those people there's just too many people and he walked away and then uh, uh, we didn't see him till like the next day but apparently he had the key in his pocket where a whole bunch of people were staying and had wandered off with it. Uh, anyway, uh, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I have a few announcements, Chuck. No, oh, you do. Yes, Let's I hear. do. Well, first of all, I wanted to announce my friend Chris Schoen's uh, podcast, Effigy, which is about uh, the labor hitch history of coal mining. Okay. In England and in uh, and elsewhere, yeah. and uh, it's actually really, really good. And it's, there's three episodes up already. Sweet. And it's uh, effigy with Chris Schoen, S C H O E N. Yes, just just do it. And uh, I don't know. I next week at uh, on Tuesday at Carrie's Lounge, I will be hosting trivia night. 
This is on uh, Tuesday, August 29th. Yes, the night before I leave. So come say goodbye to me. Come guess some trivia, win some prizes. And uh, I don't know. I've been having a, a, a really great time here, as I always do in Chicago. Such a great town, and I miss it. But I'm in L.A. now, and... That's where my health insurance is. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's where you are. So that's uh, going to be happening again next Tuesday, August 29th at Carrie's Lounge, the bar downstairs from us. That's at 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's mm. Westridge neighborhood. And on that note, Jeff. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Yes, sir. Got one more? Well, what I have is my answer to the question from hell. Okay. Which was what again? What's the worst that can happen? Yes. Flesh eating virus. There already is a flesh-eating virus. Well, I mean, like fresh water right now too. Or no, uh, it's off. It's in salt water. It's off the coast of Florida. Oh, uh, anybody who has even a small cut, a lot of people have been dying from a flesh-eating disease because it goes in. The bacteria goes into any fresh cut. Well, that's just perfect. It's in Florida, so obviously people aren't going to take any government advice not to swim there. <laughs> exactly, because exactly. they the government. And that's can't why tell so many people are probably do. dying. <laughs> Jeffy, on that note, I'm unplugging your headphones because. Folks, this is how bad our funding is here at the show right now. We only have one working of our phone, four headphone inputs. We only have one working headphone input on this side. One of our squawk boxes is just gone awry. So, on that note, Jeffy. Yeah. Stay beautiful. You heard what the guy said about me. <laughs> I, I'm worried now. I'm afraid I'm going to turn into a monster. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. And I just found out that they're not the Potawatomi, that the correct pronunciation is bod, B-O-D, not P-O-T. So it's Potawatomi, not Potawatomi people. It's like a Beijing, Peking type of thing. Exactly. Like. Exactly. And it's a three... Uh, they're, uh, part of the Council of Three Fires with the Ojibwe and Odawa, which used to be known as the Chippewa and the Ottawa. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. That is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or on Twitter at thisishellradio, or at our, face, our Patreon page, or on Discord. Or you can still email it to us, but it has to go to thisishellradio at gmail.com. And we have to have your answer right now. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and share the rest of our listeners' answers unless you already have. This week's question from hell is, I mean, what's the worst that could happen? And Jeff had the honor of being our last response. No, there, there you so go. There you go. So uh, I really liked old Grouch's response. Uh, New York City goes bankrupt again. Trump wins the presidency from prison. Uh, the Big Island Hawaii catches fire. Government bonds become worthless. Even the inflation uh, protected ones. Mm-hmm. And I am still alive. I like Dan <laughs> K saying reincarnation. Andy E, I get what I want. Which is <laughs> I really still want to know what Andy wants. I know. I'm very curious what Andy wants. Uh, Kagongaku saying, I guess, I don't know, Kagongaku saying dead astronauts with a question mark, <laughs> which is really good. Uh, Nurse Kobe saying the worst that could happen is that we collectively do nothing but wait for the uh, fantasy of normal to reappear so we can all go back to sleep. And I'm looking forward to that sleep. Uh, Adam A. saying four words, Henry Kissinger sex tape. That's really good. Uh, Warren L. saying aliens, it's always aliens. 
<sighs> but will I I'm gonna I'm just gonna pick which one I think is the you best. Should. It's your power. Because it's Doug M. Yes. Sporadic loss of bowel control coupled with total <laughs> amnesia immediately following said loss. Congratulations, Doug M., for using bowel control in your answer. You are the winner of this week's question from hell. Congratulations. All you have to do is tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want uh, from what is available at thisishell.com when you click on support, and we will get it in the mail to you post-haste. Take the camping mug. (laughs) My answer to this week's question from hell, I mean, what's the worst thing that could happen? Uh, I have no idea. But I sure as hell am not going to speak it into existence, like many of our listeners. Thanks to everyone who sent in your answer to this week's question from hell. So we got an email uh, while we were out. And this email we got is from somebody named Nicholas M. They write, hey y'all, my name is Nick Mann, a 25-year-old student and aspiring journalist, and I was reaching out to inquire if you needed any help running the soundboard. Some background about me is that I actually discovered and met Chuck for the first time at Michael Brooks' live show at Shuba's Tavern. Then sometime after I had reached out to y'all and met with Alex Jerry to run the board. I currently live near the studio and was hoping to help with the show. As aforementioned, I am just starting my journey into journalism and would love to get any opportunity to work with Chuck as I highly admire the show. Even if there isn't much help needed with the show at the moment, I would still greatly appreciate it and be honored to talk to Chuck about interviewing and journalism and pick his brain, or at least what's left of it. I hope you all have a good start to the week. Thanks and cheers, Nick. So this is the Nick who is sitting in with Will right now. Uh, The Michael Brooks event was a live appearance, and I think it was the Lincoln Theater and not Shuba's, but those things, places are very, very similar, so it's very easy to confuse one with the other, unless what little is left in my brain is failing me again. Uh, You can still find the video uh, from that evening of me on stage with Michael uh, Brooks, but if you don't uh, mind me asking you a couple of questions, Nick, it now that it's not that it's absolutely necessary to be a journalist, but did you, have you gone to school for journalism, Nick? No, I have not. So have you been uh, have you been doing some writing though? I have. See, that's fantastic. That's I have, what I have a couple things maybe for you. Excellent. Where have you been, have you been published anywhere? No. How about you? You, may, you have your own website. I am building it actually currently. Sweet, fantastic. Yes. And so uh, you said that you've moved into the neighborhood. Why did you choose to move into West Ridge? Is it why everybody chooses to move into West Ridge because it's affordable? Um, you could say that, <laughs> considering I moved in with a sibling. So oh, there you go. Very affordable. <laughs> Very affordable. So thanks, Nick, for uh, sitting in with us today. And if all goes well, we will see you again next week as we continue the training process. Uh, speaking of next week, Will, who are our guests on next week's This Is Hell? Next week. <laughs> Sorry to get my level right. That's all right. Um, Next week, we start off the week with Clark Randall, who wrote the Boston Review article, Bond Villains, how a little understood feature of urban finance, municipal bonds, uh, fuels racial inequality. Get it? Bond villains? Bond villains. Clever Clark. Clark is a graduate student and independent journalist from St. Louis, Missouri. His writing has also appeared in The Nation, Jacobin, and The New Inquiry. 
And then on Tuesday, Matt King will be on to discuss his article at the New Republic. Big Tech's waste solutions are a scam. Rather than face hard truths about reorganizing our system to stop waste, the world is falling victim to empty and inefficient cleanup promises from the tech industry. Matthew is a writer based in New York. His essays and reportage on waste, urbanism, and inequality have appeared in publications like The Atlantic, The Pacific Standard, The Baffler, among others. Uh, I had a friend named Matt King when I was living in uh, San San Francisco, and I'm really hoping this isn't the same Matt King. Yeah? (laughs) Yeah. The other Matt King wasn't uh, so Uh, great? Well, I mean, he was fine as a person. It's just that uh, he... uh, he took a rocking horse and chopped its head off and then put it on the front of his bicycle so it looked like he was riding a rocking horse down the street. Huh. Very artistic. Also, very frightening. Should uh, have them on the show if this isn't the one <laughs> so, and only. It, um, who's our final guest next week? Our final guest is we uh, an interview with uh, another Boston... Uh, review. Uh, another Boston Review article. We'll be speaking with Hugh Ryan, who wrote the piece... Who's afraid of social contagion? Our ideas about sexuality and gender have changed before, and now they're changing again. He was a writer, historian, and curator based in Brooklyn. His latest book is The Women's House of Detention. And we'll have uh, Seb Vupper. We'll be back sharing another past inside the present. We'll have This Week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi. Jeff Dorchin, as always, will deliver another moment of truth. And for the second... Uh, week in a row. Jeff will be here doing that in studio. A huge thank you to this week's producers Dan Kugler, Will Ippen, thanks to Sebastian, Ronaldo, Jeff. Thanks to Nick for sitting in today. Thanks to Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, Theron Hummison, Dan Hill, and Pete Valavanis, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell when I will be answering a Patreon, pra- uh, Patreon patron's question from hell for me. And we'll be sharing an interview on the far-right campaign to destroy universities for anyone but the rich. So we were only able to put together three hours of show today, which means if you are listening to WNUR right now or if you are listening to the podcast at Beware the Radio in the UK, what you will be hearing next is a conversation we did a couple years ago uh, with Davarian Baldwin. And the, only, the reason that we are sharing this conversation is Lisa Corrigan was going to be on the show this week to discuss the devastation that's happening to public state universities around the country with neoliberal consulting firms going in and firing teachers and slashing programs. So because we couldn't have her on the show and her book is endorsed, uh, her, uh, yes, her book is endorsed by Devarian Baldwin, uh, so we are going to be sharing um, that interview that we did with Devarian back in 2021, I believe, Devarian Baldwin, author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. That's what you'll be hearing next if you are listening on WNUR on Saturday morning or listening to Beware the Radio's full four hours of This Is Hell. This Is Hell office hours are also happening tonight. It's our meet and greet that's really a drink and think. They return tonight, Wednesday, August 23rd, beginning around 6 p.m. at Carey's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. This evening's office hours are our first in nearly a month, and as this is hell, there will be excessive heat. But there will also be cold beers, an air-conditioned bar, as well as an air-conditioned gallery, art gallery upstairs, and a beer garden to enjoy 
the fresh, hot does, air. Does that mean I have to clean up my bedding from the couch? Yes, it does. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show host, Chuck Mertz. And that's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is Yay. on my butt. Uh, my demon wait. talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>